Tammy Joe Alexander, once known to the rest of the true crime world as the Caledonia Jane Doe prior to identification, was an independent and colourful young soul. Her deep-rooted insistence on exploration and achieving adventure, as well as her inclination to travel without worry and engage with the wider world around her, was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved murder in the open fields of Caledonia, New York on November 9th, 1979, leaving all who knew her back home in Brooksville, Florida, and the entire country at large grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the murder of Tammy Jo Alexander, and the long years she spent as the Callie Jane Doe, without an identity, for three and a half decades. This is Cold Case Detective. Tammy Alexander was born on November 2nd, 1963, in Atlanta, Georgia, to parents Joe Alexander and Barbara Jenkins. From birth through childhood, Tammy lived through incredibly turbulent and terrifying times, her parents' negligence and filling the household with dread, their unruly choices permeating into the psyche and overall emotions of their children. As a mere toddler, Tammy would walk in on her mother abusing pills in the bathroom, addicted to prescription medicine after Tammy's father Joe moved out. These bouts with addiction and other mental illnesses spiralled into occasional suicide attempts, including times where Barbara would slit her wrists right in front of her own daughter. Despite the chaos and Barbara's endangerment to both her family and herself, there was no true intervention during Tammy's early years. While she did survive with the help of the infrequent relative or family friend, Barbara never achieved the help she needed, and the hardships carried over into Tammy's adolescence. After Joe Alexander left Tammy and her mother, however, Barbara did bear another daughter with a different man. Tammy was blessed with a half-sister and family ally in Pamela Dyson. The two girls used each other as lifelines during the rough bouts at home, and clung to each other's spirits when the tides of terror rolled in. Sadly, Pamela was subject to the same tantrums as Tammy, and she would later tell reporters that had Barbara been properly diagnosed by a mental health professional, she would have received treatment, and she and Tammy would have lived much more peaceful lives. Nevertheless, the sisters fought onward, and at age 11, Pamela escaped the Jenkins household to live with her paternal grandmother. She presumed Tammy was able to find a similar escape and move in with fellow relatives, but little did she know Tammy continued to be stuck in the presence of her volatile mother, left to process that trauma alone and into her teenage years. Luckily, Tammy's end of middle school and beginning of high school years weren't completely isolating. At school, Tammy was able to form a few close friendships with like-aged girls in her Brooksville, Florida classrooms. One girl in particular was Laurel Noel, 
who shared multiple personality traits with Tammy and quickly clicked with her go-getting demeanor. Laurel and Tammy would often write letters to one another, Tammy consistently informing Laurel of her most recent boy crushes and desire to escape their Brooksville home. Soon after their high school careers began, Tammy found love in another classmate, an older boy named Kevin Williams. Tammy was certain she wanted to marry Kevin despite their relative youth. In helping ends meet, Tammy joined her mother Barbara as a waitress at a local truck stop, bussing tables and collecting tips to prepare for her future abroad and away from trouble. In an intriguing twist though, trouble still followed Tammy despite her best intentions. Due to her crumbling relationship with her mother, Tammy often sought temporary escapes from her home in Brooksville, and she and her friend Laurel would hitchhike around the country as means of adventure. Often they would go places they had no connection to, just two teenage girls wandering the open United States. One time the pair hitchhiked all the way to California. However, upon arrival, Laurel called her parents out of confusion and Mr. and Mrs. Noel flew both their daughter and Tammy back to Brooksville. Tammy's parents, however, didn't seem to care and she often wrote new letters to Laurel professing her desire to hitchhike again viewing these cross-country escapades as fun journeys, never questioning the overall safety of their trips. These letters would become the defining artifacts of Tammy's final weeks alive and well. She and Laurel weren't always on the same page about things. Like many high school friendships, they took part in their fair share of arguments. But one thing was for certain in the letters. Tammy was not just a person defined by her rough upbringing or occasional carelessness. Rather, Tammy displayed a natural charisma, an enigmatic mode of operating that reflected her love of independence. Tammy was strong-willed and vastly imaginative, and above all, incredibly introspective, in tune with her emotions while understanding exactly what she wanted. She sought a sturdy life, at least something sturdier than she knew as a child, hopeful for a post-grad marriage and a happy life far far away. Her exuberance pushed her to new heights and, tragically, to new places for unknown reasons. For in 1979, Tammy Jo Alexander went missing from her sleepy town in central Florida, only to be found dead in autumn of that same year, left unidentified as the Callie Jane Doe for over 35 years. Let's now turn to the timeline of events leading up to Tammy's disappearance. The last stretch of Tammy Alexander's known whereabouts begin at 11.35pm on May the 26th, 1979, in Brooksville, Florida. She writes a final letter to her best friend, Laurel Noel, announcing her desire to get married before the year is out, and her plan to leave the Sunshine State in September of the following year. The letter acts as a goodbye of sorts due to Laurel and Tammy's impending parting of ways. This would be the last time Laurel hears from her childhood friend. A short while after Tammy sends her final letter to Laurel, around the time spring transitions to summer of 1979, Tammy ends up at the Rainbow Prison Ministry in Young Harris, Georgia. Young Harris is a rural yet mountainous region in the northern sector of Georgia, and the Rainbow Prison Ministry hosts inmates who have either been released on parole or on probation. However, why Tammy attends the camp is unknown, 
and could either be as a volunteer of sorts through a summer school program or an actual attendee. Considering her runaway incidents in Florida, seeking an alternative form of corrections. Yet none of Tammy's friends nor family know of her whereabouts and assume she has run away again. During Tammy's stay at the prison ministry in July of 1979, she leaves a series of voice recordings via phone for her boyfriend, Kevin Williams, who remains back in Florida. Kevin isn't privy to Tammy's exact location, but in her messages, she sounds at peace and hopeful, not at all disturbed nor in danger, thus prompting no anxious reaction from Kevin. This is the last confirmed communication made by Tammy. Later that summer, Tammy's trace disappears. She theoretically leaves the ministry in Young Harris, Georgia, and travels either back to Florida or westward. Due to her history of hitchhiking and taking rides from strangers, it's believed that Tammy journeys on a cross-country road trip with strangers, and most likely not by herself for the time being. As the dog days of summer give way to the mild chills of autumn, Tammy remains missing from her Brooksville community. She continues to travel, most likely northeastward this time around. Either at the end of October or the beginning of November that year, Tammy lands in upstate New York. How she gets here or why she chooses this location is unknown, but again, she is most likely accompanied by either one or multiple companions. In the early evening hours of Friday, November 9th, 1979, Tammy is reportedly spotted at a diner in Lima, New York, a small town of less than 4,000 people in the northwest area of the state. A waitress, who later accounts as an eyewitness, serves a girl matching Tammy's description and an older male figure who accompanies her. Tammy doesn't appear distressed or in any real danger, and the male figure pays for the meal before departing with Tammy a little while later. This is the last known sighting of Tammy Joe Alexander. Later that night of November 9th, Tammy is taken to a road on the edge of a farm in Caledonia, New York of Livingston County, another small town only a 20 minute drive west of the Lima Diner. Along Interstate 20 and New York State Route 5, 23 miles south of Rochester. Here, she is shot in the back of the head once via handgun, stripped of all identification, and dragged into the neighboring cornfield. In the field, the perpetrator fires one more bullet into Tammy's back and leaves her for dead. The gunshot wounds hemorrhage, and Tammy passes away before sunrise, her murderer escaping into the night. As the clock strikes midnight and the calendar flips to Saturday, November 10th, a series of rainstorms hit upstate New York and wash away most of the evidence from Tammy's body, vital DNA destroyed, and Tammy Alexander's story is blemished almost beyond any understanding. The following morning, a Caledonia farmer awakens and walks outside to check on his pastures after the inclement weather of the night before. As he approaches the cornfields, the farmer spots a bit of red fabric settled in the distance. Believing it to be a trespassing hunter or unwanted visitor, the farmer approaches with caution. Upon reaching the red clothing, however, the farmer instead finds the body of a young girl, shot twice and covered with dirt. He quickly returns to his farmhouse and alerts the police. 
Not long afterwards, authorities show up at the scene and begin collecting evidence. They find a small pool of blood on the edge of the cornfield, where the girl was shot, along with the trail leading from the blood to the body. The body itself shows no signs of sexual assault and was fully clothed. However, her pant pockets had been turned inside out as if ransacked prior to abandonment. At the coroner's office later in November, the medical examiner notices that the gunshot wounds indicate that the girl had not flinched or moved as she was shot, a peculiar yet common phenomenon in murder cases. The coroner is unable to find anything else peculiar though, and rules the death as a homicide while the police continue searching for the girl's identity. As November 1979 comes to a close, law enforcement announced the female corpse as the Caledonia Jane Doe, failing to find her family, origin points, or even name. She is initially described as a young girl between the ages of 13 and 19, standing at around five foot three inches and weighing around 120 pounds, with brown eyes, wavy brown hair at shoulder length that had been dyed four months prior to death, and coral-colored nail polish painted on her toenails. She displays no signs of dental work, her blood type comes back as A negative, and her stomach contains sweet corn, potatoes, and canned ham. The analysis of the composition and mineral content in her teeth reveal a North American drinking water pattern. Despite these revelations and biological clues, police are unable to identify the Callie Jane Doe as 1979 comes to a close. About a year later, on October 20th, 1980, authorities release a sketch of the Callie Jane Doe, asking for anyone who recognizes the girl to come forward with information. Her case is quickly shipped to major news networks, and before long, the entire state of New York is searching for Callie Doe's identity. Even with the advanced efforts of investigators to share the Callie Doe story with the general public, very little advancements are made in the case over the next few years, as the 1980s progress. A few tips here and there make their way to the proper channels, but none turn out to be of any use. The first major bend in the case arrives in 1984, when the notorious serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, murderer of 11 women and friend of fellow murderer Otis Toole, confesses to Texas State Rangers while in prison that he had killed the unidentified girl known as Caledonia Jane Doe back in 1979 without ever giving away her true identity. Rangers relay this information to fellow New York State detectives. However, even through joint investigations, each branch is unable to find sufficient evidence in this claim. Lucas's involvement is then all but ruled out in 1985, when it's discovered that he had falsely confessed to over 100 murders, in which he had zero connection. It is widely believed that the Caledonia Confession is one of these 100-plus bogus claims. As the 1980s come to a close, police interview their fair share of other serial killers and small criminals with potential links to Caledonia. However, none proved fruitful, and the case remains as cold as it was that November morning of 1979. In 1989, newly elected sheriff of Livingston County, New York, 
John York, promises the public that the Cali Doe investigation will remain active as long as he remains sheriff. York was deputy sheriff and one of the first responding officers at the scene of the crime, and acts as the strongest voice for the still unidentified teenage girl well into the new millennia. Over 15 years pass until the next major development in 2005, when forensic scientists perform a successful DNA extraction from Cali Doe's remains due to improved technology. This allows for the possibility that her identity will be found someday through another DNA sample match. Another break in the case helps authorities inch closer to solving Kalido's mystery one year later in 2006, when an analysis of her teeth display an isotopic oxygen ratio, hinting she may have been from the south or southwestern regions of the United States. These tests are paired with a palynological analysis done on the Cali Doe's clothing, in which pollen pulled from her body can be traced back to trees grown in California, Arizona, and other southwestern regions in the United States, leading investigators to recognize that their Cali Doe was not a Caledonian native. A few years later, in 2010, Web Sleuth's moderator and California artist Carl Koppelman catches wind of the ongoing Cali Doe cold case and opts to perform a facial reconstruction of the girl's profile, in hopes that a newly drawn image will aid both investigators and the general public in identifying the body. The facial reconstruction is uploaded to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, also known as the NAMUS database but no new information is discovered. Coincidentally, around the same time in 2010, Laurel Noel, Tammy Alexander's best friend from Brooksville, starts searching for her old high school classmate via social media, but cannot find Tammy or her name on any internet platform. As the next few years trickle by, Laurel doesn't give up her efforts. She eventually reaches out to Pamela Dyson, Tammy's half-sister, who now resides in Panama City, Florida. Pamela tells Laurel that she moved away from Tammy and their mother Barbara when she was only 11 to live with other relatives, and figures Tammy did the same not long afterwards. However, both women also discuss Tammy's inclinations to run away from home, and wonder if she simply left Brookville to start her own life free from her haunted history in central Florida. When Laurel informs Pamela of her own research and the lack of Tammy's presence on the internet, Pamela digs deeper into the connections with the surviving members of the Alexander family and learns that Tammy hasn't been heard from since her initial disappearance in 1979. Barbara Jenkins, the girl's mother, had died in 1998 and listed Tammy as deceased in her obituary a commonly held belief when she had never returned home after the summer of 1979. In 2014, both Laurel and Pamela share with one another their concern that Tammy had wandered along a dangerous path after she vanished, and wonder if she is a victim to an unknown crime. Pamela tells Laurel that she believes police may not have taken a missing persons report seriously if they knew about Tammy's hitchhiking history, and so, even if Barbara had filed one, it may have been disregarded or lost. Thus, in August of 2014, 
Pamela and Laurel pay a visit to the Hernando County Sheriff's Office in Central Florida to inquire about a missing persons report for Tammy Joe Alexander. The officers at the station check and say no report had ever been filed in 1979 or since, so the two women file one, and the authorities launch an official investigation. About one month later, in September of 2014, the Cali Doe artist, Carl Koppelman, spots the new listing for Tammy Alexander on the NAMUS database and realizes her face is strikingly similar to the reconstruction of the Caledonia Jane Doe. He promptly emails the Livingston County Sheriff's Office in New York, the Hernando County Sheriff's Office in Florida, the NAMUS Regional Admin, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Law enforcement quickly responds and arranges a DNA test with Pamela Dyson, since her blood relation to Tammy Alexander could provide an accurate match. A few months later, in January of 2015, the DNA results come back to the Monroe County Medical Examiner and reveal Pamela's mitochondrial DNA samples match perfectly with Callie Doe's samples. For the first time in 35 years, Detectives know the body's identity, and Pamela knows the tragic fate of her half-sister, Tammy Alexander. Not long after, on January 26th, authorities announced during a news conference the identity of the Caledonia Jane Doe, and shift the focus of their investigation from identification to solving Tammy's murder. A mere month passes by, and at the end of February 2015, the Livingston County Sheriff's Office reports that a record number of tips have flooded through their various channels, a drastic change to the slowly decreasing number of leads they had acquired up until then. One call from a Tennessee truck driver gives detectives what they describe as their most sizable development yet. However, what this is, is never disclosed. Another month flies by, and in March of 2015, the revelation regarding Tammy and her time spent at the Rainbow Prison Ministry is revealed to detectives. However, the young Harris Ministry has long since closed, and the husband and wife who started the ministry have passed away, along with one of their children. The lack of public information regarding Rainbow Prison Ministry doesn't deter investigators, and at least gives a bit of insight into Tammy's final months of life, details which had been lost for three and a half decades. A few months later, on June 10th, 2015, Pamela, Laurel, and about 100 other attendees visit Tammy's Cemetery in Dansville, New York, for a ceremony replacing the Jane Doe tombstone with one that reads Tammy Joe Alexander. The family decides to keep her in New York rather than transfer her back to Florida thanking the Livingston County officials for their hard work on the case. In what might be the biggest discovery in Tammy's case since her identification in 2015, another piece of DNA evidence is procured from an auto racing jacket found on her body in early 2016. This sample is different than the one used to identify Tammy Joe, and is found to be that of an unknown male subject. Three separate male persons of interest are brought in for questioning, and their DNA is taken in order to match against this new evidence. Almost a year passes until November of 2016, 
when the Federal Bureau of Investigation, now a major player in the cold murder case, announces none of the three male subjects matched the new DNA sample from Tammy's body, but that they are still following any and all leads that they may obtain. The most recent update delivers on what would be Tammy Alexander's 57th birthday, November the 2nd, 2020 when the Livingston County Sheriff's Office releases three segments of the audio recording acquired from her high school boyfriend, Kevin Williams, who had kept a voicemail he received from her on a tape cassette prior to her disappearance in 1979. Detectives hope that someone out there recognizes Tammy's voice from around the time she went missing. Another effort to bring the final closure to a mystery with so many twists and hardly any answers. In most cold case detective investigations, I like to hone in on one specific aspect to the case that signifies the mystery's biggest clue, or in some cases, its most microscopic detail that could cause the fissure needed to crack the case wide open. In regards to Tammy Joe Alexander's murder, I'm gonna bend the rules a bit to highlight two separate case points, as they both reflect vital pieces of evidence that we all must take seriously when considering Tammy's case. The first major case point is the description of the male subject seen with the girl thought to be Tammy Alexander at the diner in Lima, New York on the night of November 9th, 1979. The man was first spotted and described by the waitress who served him and Tammy, and is thus far the only suspect with a verified eyewitness account and corresponding profile. He was a middle-aged white man, standing around five foot nine inches. He wore black, wire-rimmed glasses, and reportedly drove a tan station wagon to and from the diner. The waitress told police that he paid for both his own and Tammy's meal, but never aroused much suspicion or concern. The man in the black-rimmed glasses is still considered a prime suspect by police, and his facial composite sketch is still used on wanted posters across the country. You can see a copy of this sketch in the show notes on this podcast. If the man in this drawing is familiar to you, if you recognize his face from the Livingston County, New York area, or any area in general dating back to the late 1970s, please call the Livingston County Sheriff's Office at one 844 5276847 The second major case point is the recordings released by police revealing Tammy Alexander's voicemails left to her former boyfriend in 1979. I have 3 segments here that I will play to you now. These recordings are thought to be from the time Tammy spent at the Rainbow Prison Ministry and showcase her personality mere months before she was killed. These are the three excerpts played one after another. Well, hi Kevin, how you doing? I'm fine. That was nice to hear from you. I'm very glad to get your letter. I gotta go now, so you take care. And be careful. Oh, that was cool. I'm looking at a postcard that says, Moon over Miami. The alluring beauty of moonrise shimmering over the Atlantic Ocean in Florida. It's 
you've got two palm trees, the moon, the ocean, and a girl in a white shirt and black pants on it, and it's blue. Beautiful. Completely beautiful, yeah. While investigators have come forward and said they believe there is nothing incriminating or suspicious involved with these recordings, they do give us a rare opportunity to hear Tammy's true self, to get a glimpse, even a small one, into the caring and optimistic person she was, and maybe even trigger someone's memory who may remember hearing that voice back during her final months spent alive in the autumn of 1979. While the chances of such recognition happening are slim as it was over four decades ago, cold cases such as these deserve every opportunity to be solved. Every avenue must be explored, as far-fetched as it may seem. Again, if you recognize this voice or know someone who might, please share this audio and call the Livingston County Sheriff's Office at 1-844-527-6847. Now let's turn to the most prominent theories surrounding the murder of Tammy Jo Alexander. For years, the central theories revolving around Tammy's case file focused on her true identity, considering her Jane Doe moniker. Luckily, that aspect of the mystery has been solved, and we can focus our theories on who killed her and how she wound up in Caledonia, New York, hundreds of miles away from central Florida. To start, it's vital to track Tammy's first movements when she left in the summer of 1979, to theorize where she may have gone and theorize who she may have met between Brooksville and Livingston County. We do know that Tammy spent time at Rainbow Prison Ministry in Young Harris, Georgia, but where did she go after this? Like many theories surrounding Tammy's murder, we can draw incredibly helpful clues from the clothing she was wearing the night she was killed, and the artifacts pulled from her body after her discovery on the morning of November 10th. As we've previously mentioned, scientists completed a palynological analysis of pollen samples extracted from the exterior of her garments in 2006 to trace the origins of the samples and track her movements via United States pollen patterns. The tests were conducted at the palynology lab at Texas A&M University, and researchers found four distinct types of pollen grains that of Australian pine, oak, spruce, and birch trees. These grains were then compared to a controlled sample of pollen grains extracted from the rural upstate New York area in 1978, one year before Tammy's tragic arrival. Oak trees are found all across the United States, alongside birch and spruce trees, which are especially popular in the state of New York. That being said, there were no oak, spruce, or birch pollen grains detected in the 1978 control sample, and it should be mentioned that no birch or spruce trees were located in the general vicinity of the body's discovery in Caledonia. In fact, the birch and spruce varieties found on Tammy's clothing were eventually matched with birch and spruce species found most often in the mountainous regions of California, on the other side of the country and 3,000 miles away from Livingston County. 
The fourth and final pollen grain extracted from Tammy's person, the Australian pine, is considered an invasive genus, grown sporadically across the United States and in surrounding countries, but in finite quantities. Australian pine can be found in Mexico, South Texas, South Florida, the campus of Arizona State University, the campus of the University of Arizona, and some regions of California. We know that Australian pine cannot survive the cold winter seasons of upstate New York. Therefore, we know at least one of these strains was picked up away from Caledonia, and the one area that shares overlap in all four pollen grains, the Australian pine, oak, birch, and spruce, is the southwest mountainous area of California, including San Diego. While detectives are confident these findings paint a clearer picture of Tammy's movements prior to death, do a few pollen grains certify Tammy's presence in the southwestern United States? No, but that's not all that hints of her westward journey. Another piece of clothing, or in this instance, jewelry, supports that very theory. A handmade necklace found on Tammy's body the morning of November 10th. The necklace, chain, clasp, and prongs are made of imitation silver, with three turquoise stones fitted to each prong, one resembling a bird. You can find a picture of this necklace in the show notes. The overall shape and craft of the necklace strongly supports a homemade origin, as it bears no brand name or identifiable match in any jewellery catalogue from the time period. Rather, investigators view the necklace as a replica of Native American jewellery, made and sold mostly in the southwestern United States. Of course, there is no way to confirm Tammy didn't already own the necklace prior to her 1979 departure, as she could have potentially brought it at a thrift store or antique stand somewhere in Florida, but experts don't think so. This would be far too coincidental, and it also ties in with Tammy's wishes to return to California that she expressed in her final letters sent to Laurel Noel. So, the route that Tammy Alexander most likely took after leaving young Harris, Georgia, tracks southwest across the United States, through the Bible Belt, through the deserts of Texas and New Mexico, and then through Arizona into Southern California. She most likely stayed in that area for more than a few days, as the tan lines found on her body post-mortem hinted at a lengthy stay in a sunny climate. It was here she probably picked up the regional Australian pine pollen grains, and then headed back east. Detectives believe Tammy then tracked through the Sierra Nevada mountain range, picking up the exclusive birch and spruce species of pollen, before heading through Nevada and most likely hitchhiking eastward towards New York State. In terms of the remainder of Tammy's belongings, police also recovered two metal keychain pendants, which were traced to vending machines set along the New York State Thruway, a series of controlled access highways that cross a mere 4.5 miles north of Caledonia. The pendants were a lock and key style of paired chains, and the locket included the inscription, He who holds the key can open my heart. Unfortunately, the key portion was also included on Tammy's body, meaning the perpetrator never took one half of the pendant. 
this clue doesn't reveal too much, except that Tammy most likely came into New York heading east on Interstate 90. Aside from jewelry, detectives took a deeper dive into the rest of Tammy's outfit to see if they could match anything else to an ulterior source. Most of what was left behind seemed to make sense belonging to a 16-year-old independent teenage girl. The tan corduroy pants, coloured plaid cotton polyester shirt, blue knee-high socks and brown ripple sole shoes all fit Tammy's demographic. However, there was one piece of clothing that did not fit a girl of her age's profile, and was thought to belong to another male. A red, nylon-lined windbreaker with black stripes along the sleeves, with a collar label reading Auto Sports Products Inc. This is the garment that included a new DNA sample belonging to an unidentified man, and was tested against three other male subjects' DNA in 2015. That DNA has still yet to be matched, but it is widely agreed upon Tammy picked up the red windbreaker on her ventures out west, either on the way there or on the way to New York. Now, this isn't proven to have belonged to the killer himself, since the killer went through the trouble of removing Tammy's other identifiable belongings, but there is a good chance whoever it does belong to knows more about Tammy than anyone else at this point in time. One specific theory attached to the Red Windbreaker does include a possible known killer, Christopher Wilder. Wilder, also known as the Beauty Queen Killer, was an Australian who immigrated to the United States in 1969. He raped 12 women and killed eight on a cross-country crime spree in a six-week period in early 1984. He is also thought to be the culprit of two statutory rape cases in Florida in 1983, as well as countless unsolved murders both back home in Australia and in the United States. Wilder's MO was to persuade young women to get into his truck after offering them a modeling contract, using his background in photography as a means to appear legitimate. The crimes that have been confirmed to have been Wilders took place all over the country, including Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Texas, Utah, Arizona, and California. But one in particular really stands out. In April of 1984, Wilder abducted a 16-year-old girl named Tina Marie Risico and forced her to road trip with him across the country while helping him abduct other unsuspecting female victims. They eventually reached New York, where Wilder again abducted a woman by the name of Beth Dodge, before killing her and dumping her in a gravel pit. He then bought a plane ticket for Tina Marie back to Los Angeles, before heading back out on the road to commit further crimes. One of the elements that makes Wilder such a fitting suspect in relation to Tammy Alexander's murder is the way he traveled while committing crimes, and the places he was known to frequent. Tammy was killed five years before Wilder's six-week homicidal spree, but it is possible he was in the United States during that time period, driving across the country, scouting out locations and understanding the general routes between state lines. It is entirely feasible Wilder ran into Tammy during her own adventures out west, and pulled the same sickening stunt he would on Tina Marie Risico half a decade later. But that is not where the suspicions end. 
Wilder was also a prevalent race car fanatic, even dabbling in stunt driving and other high speed endeavors himself. In fact, he owned a fair share of merchandise that was manufactured by the same company, labeled on Tammy's red windbreaker, Auto Sports Productions Inc., leading investigators to wonder if that jacket Tammy had belonged to Wilder. In addition, Wilder was also known to have used a Colt Python 357 Magnum revolver, a gun that can be used to fire 38 caliber bullets, the type of slug found at Tammy's crime scene. Sadly, the ballistics of Wilder's gun were never tested alongside the bullet found at the cornfield in Caledonia, and Wilder was killed in a standoff with police in Colebrook, New Hampshire, before any interview could ever take place regarding Tammy. It should be noted that Wilder's involvement in Tammy's case was theorized early on in the investigation and prior to the male DNA sample's discovery in 2015. Now, it is safe to assume that Wilder's DNA has since been tested against the Windbreaker's evidence and rendered not a match. However, until there is an official statement made by the assigned detectives, Christopher Wilder is still a solid suspect in the case. Beyond a few other lower tier criminals investigators have already ruled out using DNA evidence, there just aren't many names tied to Tammy Alexander's murder. One could conceivably still chart Henry Lee Lucas as a possible culprit using his MO and testimony, but remember that officials have his DNA on file as well, and have most certainly tested it against the mystery male subject's DNA. Of course, there is also the family left to consider. Anytime a person goes missing, especially an underage teenage girl, the focus always passes over the family. There are those that wonder if Tammy's listing as deceased on her mother Barbara Jenkins' obituary in 1998 wasn't just an assumption, but rather admissible of the fact that her family knew she was dead. As previously mentioned, Barbara had various untreated mental disorders, and working at a truck stop with Tammy would have meant frequent encounters with nefarious characters. It's possible Barbara or one of her boyfriends knew about, or worse, was complicit in Tammy's death, and then covered it up using her runaway status against her. It should also be noted that no missing persons report was ever filed, a mistake that could be rendered purposeful. Some theorists also refrain from absolving Kevin Williams, Tammy's high school boyfriend, of any guilt. Kevin was reportedly the last person to hear Tammy alive, and some suggest that if he caught Tammy running away with another guy on one of her hitchhiking escapades, he may have taken things a step too far. However, both we and the authorities do not believe Tammy's family or boyfriend are in any way involved with her disappearance and death. Tammy was rarely home as a teenager, and the fact that her mother and other family members figured she simply ran away in 1979 does make sense when factoring in her known behavior. Kevin Williams has been nothing but helpful throughout the investigation, and was only a boy at the time. These theories also do not explain how Tammy had pollen grains from terrain on the opposite side of the country and ended up thousands of miles away from Brooksville, Florida at the time of her murder. These theories simply do not fit in any way, shape or form with the remaining evidence left at Tammy's crime scene. 
and should not seriously be considered by the general public. When considering killers, recall the fact that the detectives have a DNA profile. We don't know for sure it's the killers, but it has likely been used to rule out known players in Tammy's life who are still alive, as well as criminals already included in the FBI's database. Whoever the killer is, they are not someone from Tammy's childhood. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Tammy Alexander's unsolved murder, we want to make it known that our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based upon evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each episode, and we do not attempt to promise certainty or an expert guarantee. We simply observe, research, and report. Pulling from the evidence analysed for years by scientists and investigators alike, we believe Tammy Jo left Brooksville, Florida and later Rainbow Prison Ministry of her own accord. It was her nature to explore, to find something better for herself, and her youthful independence led to her decision to escape the horrors she faced as a child and adolescent. We believe she did travel westward through the southwestern regions of the United States, most likely stopping in New Mexico or Arizona before making her way into California. Taking into account the tan lines on her body, her previous positive experience visiting the state, as well as the amount of pollen grains still attached to her clothing, it makes sense that Tammy probably spent more than just a few days in Southern California. Who she met and what she did there is impossible to say for now, but she must have eventually felt the drive to continue hitchhiking, and this is where she met her fate. We believe that at some point, Tammy decided to head eastward before running into the person who would eventually kill her. It is highly probable that whoever the killer was met Tammy and persuaded her to join him under the pretense of innocent ideals. They were likely a practiced manipulator and took advantage of a young girl desperate for transportation, but open-minded enough to tag along with a stranger. The two made it to New York, where Tammy bought her New York State through a pendants from the vending machine and enjoyed one last dinner, unaware her life was about to end. We believe it was Tammy that night at the Lima Diner that the waitress who reported her sighting with the anonymous male subject is telling the truth. The stomach contents in Tammy's post-mortem matched the exact type of food served at the diner in which the eyewitness waitress worked. Sweet corn, potatoes, and canned ham. It was after this final meal, the killer unveiled his true colors, callously murdering the young girl via gunshot wound to the back of the head. Who the killer is exactly is at this point impossible to discern. In 1979, it was common for people to not only ask for rides, but for drivers to pick up hitchhikers too. To narrow down the list of middle-aged white men who gave a ride to young girls in the late 1970s would pose an astronomical task, a feat without an end. Whoever the killer was, however, he knew what he was doing. He was likely a practiced criminal. He may have escaped persecution, but be in prison for another crime or maybe he died via other means. Their identity and role in the murder lost to a grave hundreds of miles away. Or maybe he is still out there, lurking in the shadows in old age. 
Whoever it is, and regardless of his fate, there is always a chance for capture, no matter how many days have passed or how many leads have been exhausted. If the Golden State Killer can go decades between crime and capture, others can too. And until the man responsible is behind bars, we must operate with the belief that justice can be done and will, in time, be served. Remember his description, remember his face. There is always hope for justice to be done. Until that time, however, we must remember that the long and winding story of the Caledonia Doe is not defined by a cornfield in Livingston County, New York. It is not defined by two gunshot wounds, or a tattered red windbreaker, or a few grains of pollen. It is the story of a promising young woman named Tammy Jo Alexander, who persevered through extraordinary and terrible circumstances to become the person she was supposed to be. Too often, a person who runs away from home or hitchhikes into potential danger is viewed as unstable or unintelligent, a youth who is asking for trouble. But remember, Tammy was surrounded by instability and malevolence at home. She fought through a chaotic childhood, survived abuse and trauma, and found the strength to seek out a bright future. Through whatever means necessary, the judgment of others be damned. Tammy was an explorer, a courageous adventurer with a passionate soul, more than just a survivor, but a fighter and optimist as well. Her legacy was that of an enigma for 35 years, but from here on out, it will be that of a human being who deserved the chance to create the life she sacrificed everything to pursue. She had a right to start anew, to make friends and relationships with those that would listen to her story, and to feel a part of this world. It is our privilege and duty to not only listen and learn from Tammy Jo's story, but to share it as well. Remembering her for the woman she was, not the cruelty she endured. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective podcast. Should you wish to delve deeper into the mystery, you can follow the case file link included in the show notes, which contains important photographs, documents, maps, and further reading relevant to the case. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover. If you would like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in a fortnight with a new episode.